Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 201. We're into a whole new whole new realm. Done 200 previously. Not missed a Wednesday. And 200 episodes. Often done more than one a week. Crazy. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. I'll mention right at the start that this week's guest is Cedric Bixler-Zavala of At The Driving, which is one of my most requested guests. As you'll hear in the podcast me and Cedric have been trying to line this up for a couple of years now so I was delighted to get it done and it's one of my favourite episodes I've done I've been saying that a lot this year and then after that I've been saying that a lot this year but it truly was um, you'll hear that At The Driving growing up were one of my favourite bands and Cedric as a performer was one of my my, my biggest influences whilst that may not come across because I'm doing rap and he's doing rock of sorts punk of sorts hardcore of sorts i don't know but yeah big influence but big love to everyone who has been sharing and going crazy over last week's 200th episode it went down a treat and i'm willing to say that it's the first time there's been a podcast between a man with a stutter and a a woman with Tourette's uh, an over hour long conversation unedited uncropped and unpolished and yeah, it really it, it meant the world that people responded to it well. It was amazing to hear people saying how a few people felt um, at the start it was quite hard to listen to or jarring because of the 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 speech diversity. But by 10, 10, 15 minutes in, it just flowed by. It's similar. I honestly think it's similar to if you've been listening to this this for a long time. I think a lot of you don't really notice my stuttering on on cue my stuttering that much anymore and it's the same with me I don't notice it until I listen back to things or until it's highlighted and things like that a lot of the time so yeah I thought that was great and I had that exact experience obviously the thing with Jess's tics is that um a lot of them are fucking hilarious like some really funny sentences so whilst I get completely in the flow of not really noticing her biscuit ticks or I love cats ticks but when she drops things like Mother Teresa going down I, I can't remember what it was but it was a very s- s- saucy sexual one um, about Mother Teresa it, it cracked me up um, and that's okay that's kind of the point and a lot of the points that she made were yeah were beautiful um, but yeah this week we're sponsored by Speech Development Records, as ever. Um, the sun's come out, as you might have noticed, and that gives me the excuse to roll out uh, the Dark Summer photo shoot again. Because last year we broke into an abandoned Pontins, and we did this amazing f- f- photo shoot of the of the swimwear I've done, the, the leggings, the sunglasses that went absolutely cr- crazy last year. S- so yeah. All available at speechofanimalrecords.com. If you're fast forwarding this bit, I'm going to pause, hopefully, because you normally the skip is normally like 15 seconds, so I'll pretend the advert's over. Um, and then I'll say that this is the 200, 201st episode, so if there's ever a time to support by, by, by buying some merch, 
then it's now again always on these things if you can't afford to that's absolutely fine the reason i don't do a patreon or kickstarters or these things is i want everyone to just if they can't afford it then this is just here for you for free every week for three four years now um i've got sponsors that, that covers my costs and things like that just about here and there but if you did want to support um, if you had some spare cash, then go and buy some sunglasses or the Distraction Pieces podcast book signed from Speech Event on Records.com or any of the merch, the Distraction Pieces merch, the Speech Development merch, the record, my live DVD, my graphic novel of poetry. Yeah, there's tons of cool stuff on there. So head to Speech Event on Records.com and check that out. On to this week's episode. In fact, I'll mention a few of the upcoming ones. Next week, I'm joined by Beans on Toast. A lot of you know Beans. He's been touring for years and years. He played with... When Frank Turner played Wembley, Frank chose Beans, myself and Dan Lasak and Billy Bragg to support him. And it was one of the best nights I've had. The lineup was ridiculous, as you've just heard. So that was cool. Um, I've also recorded an Ask Pip episode, answering a load of your questions. I'll put that out in a few weeks. Maybe a full month away, but a few weeks probably. Jamali Maddox, I've been hyping that one for ages because it's really good and people are excited about that. Um, if you haven't seen his show on Vice, it's on your TVs, on Sky and things, things like that, it's on demand. Um, but also you can just go on the Vice website and watch it. Um, it's called Hate Thy Neighbour and it's fantastic. It's kind of a modern a Louis Theroux but very different but great. Um, I've recorded one with Mark Goddard. Um, at last, again, a lot of people have requested that for a long time. I'm going to try and do a little MMA week with MVP um, and Mark Goddard coming out, and that'll be a two episodes a week one. Um, yeah, so loads to come, loads of good stuff. I'm hoping to talk to Nick Hawks, who was one of the guys that started XL and signed The Prodigy and things like that, and has, has just started a dance music podcast with Eddie Temple Morris um, called Trailblazers. So I'm going to try and get him in, in the next... A few weeks actually I'll, I'll try and record that and rush that one out as a bonus because their podcast is coming out soon so yeah a lot of good stuff to come but Cedric my man yeah this was amazing to do. I drove up to Birmingham it was on a week where I was recording seven podcasts in five days I think and doing driving all around the country again another reason to go and buy some merch from speech available records.com you know I'm, I'm putting in the effort here guys um and yeah i popped up and managed to grab an hour with cedric before he went to soundcheck in birmingham i didn't even manage to catch the gigs on this tour that's how hectic it's been but it was amazing it was a really good chat i got some really good some really good history out of him discussed some stuff i've always wanted to know so this is scroobius pip the at the drive-in and mars volta fan doing this podcast so it's kind of exciting for me because i think a lot about the driving fans will this is the interview with cedric they've kind of wanted to hear i know i'm and i say that because i'm an at the driving fan and it's what i wanted to hear so yeah we we, are we going to a load of stuff um and you're going to enjoy it i'll leave it there i don't need to say anymore i should mention the my club night is returning we Are Lizards is at the book club on May 25th, I think, uh, with Doc Brown coming down to DJ. Check that out. 
Um, and I'm at the Wells Comedy Festival doing the live podcast um, on May 26th. I'm on the Sunday, so if the Sunday is the 26th and the Saturday is the 25th, then they're the dates. If it's the 26th and 27th, it might be actually. The Saturday might be the 26th. Anyway, at the book club on the Saturday, end of May, and at the Wells, the Wells Comedy Festival on the last Sunday of May, doing the live podcast. So come along to that because you guys are needed because you guys are part of the live podcast. The way I do the live ones is I set up a table and chair on stage and some mics and the audience queue up and people who want to come and ask a question can ask a question now that can be a question you've got about me about the podcast about previous episodes or it can be about anything going on in the world that you'd like my opinion on or an opinion that you'd 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 like to share something about your job or your passion or anything like that so yeah that's how that works so come down have a chat and uh, I'll see you all then. But for now, this is episode 201 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Cedric Bixler Zavala. And we're rolling. Right, I'm joined by C- Cedric Bixler-Zavala. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we've been trying to l- line this up for a while now, haven't we? And It seems and- like it's been a couple of years now. Huh? Yeah, it has. It's been a few years, <laughs> but I'm glad it's it, it's finally happening. You're in the middle of um, of a tour at the moment yes. in, in, in the UK. Yes. H- how's that all, all been? Oh, you're at the end, actually. Well, yeah, we're on the yeah, road for a while. Three more, so- uh, three, songs. three more shows. <laughs> So fried my brain is doing this, but yeah, yeah we were on the the last leg of it anyway, so it's good. It's been a lot of fun, and it's 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 kind of it feels like it's been constant since you guys returned. I caught you, I think, in 2016 yep. in London, and then it feels like you've not been off the road that much yeah. since then, just going kind of all around the world. Yeah, in, in, in my pea brain, it's just like oh, the days off, they you know. They're they're huge to me, and then when we get back on there, it, it, until you say it like that, it's like yeah, it's been two years. It has been constant. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Well, let's. I mean, I want to talk about everything in recent years, but I want to kind of go back to the start. We've got an hour or so to get as much in as sure, we can. Sure. So, um, growing up in in Texas as a Mexican American, it's it's not a natural thing that you think would lead itself to 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 punk or to metal or to hardcore. So how like. Uh, what was your upbringing like and what were your kind of influences there? I, I always call it, uh, I say, Michael Jackson to breakdancing to, to to heavy metal music to skateboarding to punk rock. Yeah. That was like the little yeah. sprinkling of DNA that just happened to, to be there. But, and, and prior to that was, was watching a TV, TV movie, kind of made for TV movie called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Amusement Park where I, I got introduced to Kiss and... My dad was like, oh, God, no. Why do you want to dress like that? And it was all downhill from there. Yeah. So that's, I can imagine. that's how it happens. Pop, pop culture just sort of finds a way of piquing your interest. And then El Paso, there's not much to do, really. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I really got involved in all those sort of subcultures. It's, it's great because they're all things and scenes that have a huge identity. Mm-hmm. So s- skateboarding and punk and even being a fan of, of, of Michael Jackson. They're all things that people got hugely into and 
whereas now it feels like there's a lot of stuff, oh, I listen to this band or listen to that. Those were all, you listen, you dress, you speak, yeah. you act. Everything is all, yeah. all kind of bleeding into itself. <laughs> so so, so, what was the scene like? Because recently on social media or in the last a few months, you posted a few kind of early band photos and stuff like that. And it, again, it looks like almost the, the feeling of when there is so little to do, you do what you do passionately. Yes. If that makes sense. So it seemed that it, there might have been a small scene, but everyone in the scene was was vehement about yeah. getting into it and, and yeah, doing it. Yeah, surrounded by people who just celebrated having a little bit of music to watch live as as if though it was the biggest sacrament we could have in our lives. And yeah, that was just so important to have like minded people around me that way that that knew that this was important in some weird way. Yeah, and so it it's. People like um, like this guy Ed Ivy, who was his punk band was called the Rhythm Pigs, and they're the first uh, punk band to tour in Europe. Yeah. So he was like our older older brother because he became a promoter. So thanks to people like him and other weird people, we had weird people who were sort of promoters. They were like really like some of them were a little mentally ill. Yeah. And just took a chance by letting their house be the place to play. Yeah. And so there's just all these legendary stories of anything from Sam Hain to the Ramones coming through El Paso. And, oh wow! And then and then I the experience to me is best summed up if you ever read "Get in the Van" by Henry Rollins. He plays El Paso with Black Flag, and he kind of comes up with this funny scenario of like, "God, what what do people do here for fun?" And he says something like, "Oh look, there's some dirt on the floor. Well, I got some water. Let's make some mud." That's El Paso. <laughs> that's El Paso in the late 80s, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, mid-80s, you know. That's really what it was like. So we make our mud into uh, stages and band names and just make up our own fun. I love that. And I think that's a key thing. I think there's 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 all this, there's a lot of desire to grow up in a London or in LA or in New York. But I think in places like that, you can be at risk of taking culture, music, art, for granted, mm-hmm. the the small town I've lived in um, my whole life, gigs were a huge deal because I'd have to travel an hour to two hours each way to go and see it. It wasn't just, oh, what are we doing tonight? Yeah. Oh, there's something on. So each gig I went to meant the world, and yeah. each album I got hold of meant the world. It wasn't this kind of, oh, there's another one, and just just throwing it off. So I think that can help influence the the passion and devotion that yeah. that, that is built in those in those smaller towns. Yeah. So when did you start to to find music yourself or start seeing it as an option? Because, again, the negative of smaller towns and out there towns is it can often seem like a faraway dream or fantasy. Like, that's 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 not achievable. Yeah. These bands are coming through, but they're gods. I could never be one of them. It's another right. plane. So when did it kind of become open to you? It really became open for me when my my dad came home and said you know rick james is playing he didn't know anything about rick james and they were going to take us and i think at the last second he found out how nasty he was yeah and so then I, we couldn't go because at that particular moment i was really involved in the skateboarding um we used to go to this place called three fountains which is just this gigantic ditch and um just by chance omar's parents live right at the top of the hill and at this particular time i went to the ditch a band called Uglor was playing, and they <clears throat> took all their equipment. It was a three-piece. They put up a, a, a generator to, yeah. for electricity and just played. 
And I remember watching them, and um, someone sent me a video of it, actually. It's my first time trying to slam dance. And that was the first time I could actually touch them yeah. and see and realize I can do that. Yeah. You know? And all the little hints I had gotten from TV programs about what punk music was, I finally got to see it. So that's, for me, one of the key pivotal points in my life of yeah. being like, here's some something you can touch. And, you know, this is how it's done. It's real and yeah. achievable. And it just impacted me big time. The drummer had uh, dreadlocks that he had shaved off. And super glued back on his head. And so, and then, you know, and they just had this legend about them. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. And I just love the name. I think most nerds understand Uglor is the name of a villain from Space Ghost. So that even hit harder. Yeah. I thought, that's a heavy name, Uglor. These three guys, you know, with a generator, and they just played for maybe 20 of us. And it yeah. was, blew my mind. Amazing. And, and it's those weird ones, because... It's the biggest compliment that always feels like a bit of an insult as well. When there is that band that you're like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of, it's like, it, right. it, but it does mean the world. I've, I've, had, I've had numerous ones of these small gigs that are those moments where you're suddenly like, I could be on that side of yeah. this rather than just on yeah. this side. And yeah. it's never because they're, they're shit or because they're not this, but it's, I don't know, it's the humanizing nature of it. Yeah. So how did, at the driving I come about. You mentioned Omar, and you kind of you you, you grew up together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you decide that 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 you two were going to be a band? How did you find who else was going to be part of that band, and and what was the process? At the time, I was um, I was approached by this band called Foss, and it was a guy named Arlo Clark and Mike Stevens and Beto O'Rourke. And Beto O'Rourke right now is pretty much going to run against Ted Cruz oh, wow. for Texas. So, and he's been doing really good. So Beto uh, taught me all my ins and outs of, like, do-it-yourself touring and yeah. introduced me to uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, the radio show, and the magazine. And the magazine annually printed a thing called Book Your Own Fucking Life, and it was just a list of houses and venues you could play throughout the states oh, or the world, amazing. really. So it was like that was every DIY touring punk band's Bible. So we had that, and I learned that from them. And at the time, Omar had his band, and they had – took off and i think they didn't complete their tour something like they disbanded and then he just was hitchhiking all the time yeah so then um i got home from foss and uh one one of those like we did two tours two big summer tours and i got home and um my other band that i sang for just wasn't wasn't going anywhere doing anything they weren't really serious about it and uh the only person i knew who was serious was jim ward yeah at the time so i approached jim we started playing. We started screening our own shirts. We started the band playing acoustically in a ditch. Uh, El Paso has lots of ditches. That's yeah. that was those were our skate parks back then. Yeah, and um, uh, we started it there, and we had accumulated a bunch of young kids just freshly graduating from high school, and uh, I would just keep in touch with Omar wherever I could find him. Yeah, because he was everywhere, hitchhiking. You know, he'd be at dead shows or he'd be selling acid for people or he'd be living in some shithole squat in Baltimore and living in Baltimore can be scary. Yeah. I mean, it really is exactly the way John Waters pants it out to be or the wire. It's, yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I remember him being out there and I remember just one of the conversations being like, you just need to come over here and we need to need to join us, you know, and he came and he was like, you, you're playing with Jim because at the time Jim was like um, more of like an, uh, an indie rock kind of person and 
we kind of came from more hardcore punk. Yeah. And so he was like, you're playing with Jim. And I'm like, it's the only serious cat in this town. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and he joined and, uh, that's kind of like how at the drive-in really started going. I mean, we did some, some touring without Omar, but I think as soon as he got into the picture to add the, the element where we all start kind of, uh, Getting sides and button heads, yeah, which actually makes good music, yeah, completely, and and, uh, and, and, and yeah. allows you to to be the two on one on the more hardcore side, yeah, and on the indie. If it's you and the right. indie guy, you've got to have more right. leeway. Whereas if there's two of you who are that side, right, then you can drive it in that direction, right. And so the other people that were in the band uh, after the <laughs> tours, they weren't really that uh, devoted to it, and and some of them became doctors and did other things. But Jim, Omar, and I. Were the core for for a bit, yeah. So because we understood what what it was like to, uh, you know, um, really follow the, the the dream. For me, the, one of the dream was watching a movie called Another State of Mind, where um, social, social distortion youth brigade they go on tour in a in a big sort of U-Haul and, and a school bus, and you know they played all these unpaved roads basically yeah. that are normal to play now. Yeah, and that was really inspirational to me. So it was always like. We just got to follow the blueprint of this movie. Yeah. You know, you got to play for no one and it's okay. Yeah. You know, and that's, that movie's really important for us. So that's, that's kind of like the beginning of it is it's, it's three people being like, there's nothing to do here. We got to get out of this town. It's kind of, people don't realize how important the, the playing to know one part of your career is because people see it as the tough bit you have to get through, but it's not, it's when you can be kind of shitty mm-hmm. and there's not that many people to spot yeah. it and find out. It's exactly. when you can get really good. Then exactly. by the time there's a crowd there, yeah. you know what the fuck you're doing yeah. and it kind of works perfectly. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the, the imagery and the, and the thought or, or more the outlook and attitude of, of, of it'd be easy to think, Oh, all there is in our town is ditches. <laughs> Whereas the epitome of perfect venue is an amphitheater right. is essentially someone a ditch that someone's built yeah so i love that idea of rather than going all we've got is ditches going oh shit we've got ditches <laughs> yeah we've, we've got natural amphitheaters to make this fucking cool as fuck venues skate yeah. parks everything else it's it sums up the kind of punk diy and attitude often i struggle when people hit me up online for advice on even if it's on podcasting or on music or on touring on how to get started and i think the best bit of advice is don't Go around asking people. Just go out and start doing it. Yeah. I think if you're sending an email saying, how should I do it? You're doing it wrong already. You yeah. should just be going, let's, let's try playing in that ditch. Mm-hmm. Oh, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's, let's try playing over there. Let's try playing in this pub. Yeah. And doing it as, as kind of a trial and error, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, so how was it when, or, or when did you feel that the driving kind of found their sound? Because you, you, as soon as we heard you over here, it was such a distinctive, and refines a sound. Did you kind of always have an idea in mind of what you wanted to be, or was that kind of again a trial and error of of seeing what? I think it was both way? trial and error and wanting to get to a point that uh, we wanted the band to sound like a certain something. So, like our first record, that's us still trying to get to that sound. And until Paul and Tony come into the band, does it really solidify yeah. what that sound was? So. By the time they get in the band, we uh, ambitiously and naively tell ourselves, we're going to go on a six-month tour. And uh, we only complete four months. Right. It was pretty fucking grueling. 
Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. But that doing that is what really, really, you know, what jazz musicians call woodshedding. You, uh, you're just in there trying to find yourself, trying to find how you, uh, chemically and alchemically react to each other and, uh, finish each other's sentences. And that, that four month tour was the old fashioned way old politicians and the way, uh, back to Beto O'Rourke, what he does nowadays, which is go door to door, basically being yeah. like, this is us. This is us. This is us. Yeah. Here's our sticker. This is us. This is us. Here's our record. This is us. You know, so we did that and that's how we really got closer to that sound because Tony was the drummer I was always looking for yeah. to make that certain sound. And yeah. it was like once he was there, I was like, that's, there it is. That's what I wanted. And, and again, it's, it's something that you can only really build and refine when you're outside of your own town. Because in your own town, you, you're another local band. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're outside of it, there's an assumption that you're a real thing and that you're a real deal. And you can then start to take that on. It's not just, are you playing to your mates? It's these right. strangers. And there's, oh, at the driving here, who are they? Who, who is this? And you can right. kind of project that rather than, oh, people in the crowd, oh, he used to be in that band and that guy's from that band right, and right. that guy's from that band. It's like, no, this is this, it's own creature. So yeah. I think that's an essential thing of getting out there as grueling and as horrible as it can be. Yeah. Of getting out there on your own. We weren't even representing El Paso because a lot of the bands in the punk scene were, um, they didn't really care about us as well. So it was like, well, that's um, <clears throat> that's okay, but I don't want to be just one of the people that play every weekend, you know? Yeah. I want to be, I want my name to be in Book Your Own Fucking Life as like, oh, okay, he's out here doing what yeah. we do. I can trust sleeping on his floor. I can trust him put a show on you know so that's that was the goal these small little goals that don't pay the bills at all yeah um you know so that's we we achieved some of that i think our first success was getting a, a dialer and a dialer is that little digital thing you hold up to a payphone that mimics the sound of a quarter being dropped right so the guy did our show was like would you like pizza or would you like a dialer to be paid because no one was there at the show and was like we'll take the dialer yeah, and I remember at that point, everyone at home was like, "They're doing good. They can call home." I'm like, "You have no idea." Yeah. But yeah, it was success for us. You know, it's that illusion, isn't yeah. it? It's, that, it's, it's, it's the mythology of it. And again, I think it's key as well the small successes because they they are what's important. And as soon as you've been doing it a short while, you can kind of forget that. Yeah. That 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 as soon as you're in the industry as such, you can forget that all the little successes, everything that you're. You, you're doing yeah. is so far ahead of what you originally set out to do. You mm-hmm. generally set out like, I'd love to play in that town or yeah. again, be in that guide. Yep. It's like, well now you've surpassed that. And yeah, yeah <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, so one of the things in the UK, we, even before I think I'd heard any of at the drive-ins music, I'd heard l- legend of your live shows mm. and of your performances and actually, in the initial run, I never got to see you guys. I caught Mars Volta a few times, but then it was only on this recent return. I'd watched a load of videos, obviously, but what influenced your your lifestyle? Because what was striking and exciting was we'd heard the record, and it's you know, it's there is obviously your singing style as well stands out from a lot of the harder stuff, but still, there's there's hardness and aggression mm-hmm. in there. Yet your performances. I've got such flamboyance and movement. Um, I was discussing, I was, I was, it was Mother's 
day yesterday as we record this, and I was saying to my mum, I'm coming to record a podcast, and I was saying to her, do you remember about three, four years into into my performing, I started to spin the mic and, and kick the mic. I was like, that's all Cedric. I saw Cedric, and I was like, as, as, and I thought, as a rapper, who's doing that? Who's got the mic on the lead and kicking it and spinning it? But that must have been your kind of outlet then. Punk was very much, and hardcore was very much, grip the mic in a fist and uh-huh. scream aggressively yeah. and you were kind of dancing and moving and popping what yeah. what kind of where did all that come from i guess i, I think that came from break dancing and, and really loving that as a kid and trying to fuse both of them together and not have it be uh rap rock yeah um and basically just growing up on on um, stuff like that and, and dancing as a yeah. kid and yeah. being the kid who made moonwalking illegal in my third grade class because I do it all the time. Like, kind <laughs> of turned in my fucking homework up up to the front desk, I'd have to moonwalk to go to frontwards moonwalk, sideways, you know. So that was just I always there. And I, I love the constant <laughs> argument over who invented the moonwalk. <laughs> no one can argue over who got it made illegal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> fuck who invented it. Fuck who, who made it illegal. <laughs> I just, I was always obsessed with that as a kid. Yeah, I I, lo- I watched Beat Street and uh, Breaking, and you know I was head over heels about breakdancing. I yeah. love that kind of stuff. And then later, I started buying a lot of um, Live Dead Kennedys videos, and he would and Jello would literally try to mime the lyrics. And because I was really into his lyrics, I understand what he was doing, and it was so so great. And I think I took a lot from him, and then. At that time, my more contemporary stuff was like uh, Guy from Fugazi. Yeah. And um, the one I don't think anyone can, can surpass nowadays, and he's still doing it, is is Ian from Makeup. Yeah. Because he just had an amazing charismatic magnetism about what, what he did, and he could suck the air out of a room. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, and yeah. I think for a long time I just either copied or – tried to make my own version of what at least Guy and Ian did. Yeah. And from there you just discover other, other freaks out there that are interesting to watch. Yeah, completely. So, so was, was Jello, for example, an influence lyrically as well? Because lyrically, again, when we got at the driving over here, it was always a, a lazy journalist piling it in with, a Rage Against the Machine and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But lyrically, it couldn't have been more different. Rage was so, and I love Rage, mm-hmm. was was so, here's the message that yeah. we're putting across. Mm-hmm. And at the drive-in was like, you're singing along going, I don't know what the fuck I'm agreeing to here. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, I'm signing into something. I don't know what it is, but I'm on, on board. So, so what was the kind of influence uh, lyrically? Because it is all quite, it's always quite abstract. It's intricate. It's a lot of yeah. wordplay and the beauty of, 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 of playing with syllables and patterns. Mm-hmm. What was the influence there? Where did that come along? Mainly my, my introduction through watching 120 Minutes, the MTV program, yeah, yeah. and um, the song New Big Prince came on by The Fall. Right. And that just bit me right away. Yeah. His delivery. Yeah. And always um, getting to that age where you start coming across stuff like William Burroughs. And I just thought it was be interesting to jam pack stuff and sort of be a court gesture yeah. about stuff because sometimes you'll find through the repetition, through the sort of invocation of it that you tend to 
go, oh shit, that's what that's what I mean. Yeah, you know, and and I thought it would just be a little more interesting to have it because we were playing to a lot of like fat records or hardcore kind of audiences where it was very linear what they were saying. It was usually you call me a friend, stab me in the back, kind of yeah, repeated over and over and over, or some straight edge theme that was yeah. just really. It's it was it just was not 1988 anymore, and yeah. I just got tired of that, and I wanted to, I guess I wanted to be a little artier about it, and then it just sort of started working, you know. And yeah, I never knew at the time what I was trying to say, but if I were to take a snapshot of what I was going through, I could understand what that what it's alluding to, yeah. and um, I just thought it would be cool to make <laughs> language interesting again for people and not have it be so dumbed down because it's in rock format yeah and and that's what i love about it is that it's if you're taking it uh, most people if they're taking influence from burrows and and beat poets and stuff like that would be writing this intricate stuff and then making sure everyone can hear every word but the beauty of it is it's so intricate and then it's screamed in a way that half the time i'm not picking up some of it right that's that's I love that outlook of crafting it and then going, right now it just needs to explode out. It's the right. kind of uh, the, uh, the Ian McKay thing of where he'd, he'd say he'd rather hear people who who maybe don't have the technical skill to get their message out, but need it needs to explode out of their body rather than someone who can articulate it all perfectly right. and articulately, instrumentally or, or, or vocally. And that's, the, that's kind of the feeling it's got. It's like there's something really important here but the level of importance of it means that it's just exploding out of you. So right. it kind of, yeah, it works nicely. Um, one of the ones that are my f- favourite at the at the driving song, and again, it's it's a beautiful one because I know there's a story behind it. But again, the mystique of the of the lyrics m- makes it relatable to to anyone. And it's a Napoleon solo is is a favourite of mine, and I post it online every year because um, it reminds me of. It always makes me think of a mate of mine that I lost when he he, he died on his his twenty first birthday, and it's a song that the feeling of it and everything just really. He used to be into at the drive, and he came to see Mars Volt or this and things like that. It kind of has that feeling. So, so what's kind of the story behind that? I was, I, was, I wanted to pick a song to go deeper into right. the lyrics, and I'd kind of Instagrammed it and we'd chatted a bit in the right. past. So, I I believe. I believe it to be now sort of a, I mean, it's, it's definitely got a, a direct message, yeah. but um, having getting to the point where we play it and, and people still react to it, even yeah. though it's a song that's not on relationship with command, yeah. since that is the stereotype of what we are. Of course. Um, and that was people, it at the roundhouse. It was, it, I think it was at the roundhouse, the live performance of it that pushed it ahead to become my favorite. Right. Cause it was like, I love this song. And then saying it live, it was like, this is best. and it is. You're right. It's an unusual one. A lot of people are, are waiting for that. All the songs off that big album, right? Yeah, and, and that then, is one that jumps. Out. And then it comes out, and people get um, really excited by it. Which is that just makes me really. Um, it hits me really hard every time because we were in the middle of that four months tour, and I used to play in a band with these two girls, and we were called The Fall on Deaf Ears, and it was a guy on guitar. Two girls, uh, bass and guitar, and I played drums and sang too. And uh, they were about 15 when I played with them. Mm-hmm. So they were always like my little sisters, you know. <clears throat> and then we had, a, we had a really bad falling out, and the band broke up, and then I went on this tour. Because I used to be in both bands at the same time. And uh, 
we were kind of estranged and they had come to one of our shows in Texas and uh, no one told me they were there. Yeah. That night they were driving home and they, one of them fell asleep with the will and they crashed and they, they died that night. Wow. And I just remember being like, when I heard about it, we got the call as we were on stage in New Orleans. So there's the references of New yeah, Orleans. Yeah. And, and it's just sort of this uh, scream of consciousness snapshot of how, it, how we found out yeah. and where we were. And I remember finding out, and then we played like maybe three songs and must have said something about losing them. And someone was smarting off to me in the audience, and I just sort of lost my cool and I think a fight almost broke out and we were uh we just went to a hotel room sort of like bury our heads and uh we couldn't even go home we couldn't afford to go home yeah and so I remember I'd saved all this money and I put it under my bed so that when I got back from that tour I'd have something and I remember calling my dad being like just take all that money and send flowers to the funeral because we can't we can't go back home we had nothing yeah and so the the best I could do um is write a song about that feeling yeah. of, of losing them and, and in losing them and not being able to say goodbye and not resolve our differences. And just to say how proud I was of ever playing music with them. Cause they were so cool. They were so, I mean, being a woman musician in our punk scene at the time was that, that was ballsy enough. Yeah. And a young one. As yeah. Well. Yeah. And they were, uh, they were really amazing. And um, that's, what that song's about. It's yeah. about the day we got told that Sarah and Laura passed away and, uh, you know, I maybe naively I think that they would have wanted us to keep going, but I always still feel guilty about having to go and yeah. tour some more and, and stuff like that. But uh, but that's what it's about. But does it feel like a celebration to play that song? Yeah, it no, definitely. No, not yeah. after night now. Yeah, you know, there are times though where I dip back and I go, I I I I hope yeah that they're not sore at me yeah. wherever they are. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I yeah. hope they I hope they see it as the as our bat signal when yeah. the song plays is that it shines out to wherever they are and they understand that I speak their name as much as possible. But yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we got home from that big ass tour and I can't remember who sat down and wrote it, but I know I had some of the parts guitar wise and some of the, the, the leads that open up. Yeah. And I can't remember if I did them with Omar or with Jim at the time. I don't remember. And then just that interplay beginning the way that yeah. was born and, just after that long tour, we really started gelling everything that became in Casino Out, and that was one of the songs that yeah. really stuck out. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, so how was it after? Kind of, it's it, it always to everyone. It always seems that every band appears out of nowhere, right? But there's there's as years of touring and years of graft, and then it did seem that a relationship of command just put a rocket under you guys and propelled you, particularly one arm scissor was just on all the, on MTV all the time, things yeah. like that. How was that when that was suddenly from being, we can't even afford to go home. We can't even afford to call home to you're known kind of all over the world. I know we'd only played London once Yeah, at the Camden. I can't remember what it's called. See the electric ballroom. It was, it's the small, small, small one. The barfly. I think the barfly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And at the time I'm like, Oh man, Rocket from the Crypt is playing. I want to go see that. Yeah. That's going to be a big show, you know. Yeah. And then we played, and there was hardly anybody there. But um, I think that was the show that some journalists were there, and yeah. then they spread the word. I mean, we had just been enjoying going to Germany a, a bunch because that was, you know, 
<laughs> no one cared about us at home. And we, there we go to Germany, and they're like, play Hourglass. Oh, we don't have a keyboard. We got one for you. Like, that's how it was in Germany. Amazing. So um, then that happened in the UK, and then Paul turns on one of those New York stations in when we were in New York and the song One Arm Scissor came out, that was really weird. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be like that at all. It's, it's, you know? it's weird how that can happen with a lot of bands. I always remember that that a lot of Americans thought Kings of Leon were a British band because they blew up so huge yeah. over here. Yeah. And when unknown at all in America, and then they kind of heard about it that way. And it's right. weird when kind of you can have those pockets of places that just, that just get it and care about yeah. it. And that can then, yeah. It's really interesting being exciting everywhere else. I mean, we, we, we kind of saw a certain pattern of things started opening up, especially after we played this one thing called This Ain't No Picnic, and that's named after a Minutemen song, and that was just like sort of a, all the sort of indie and touring punk bands that were really hitting the, the highway all the time. That's when I got to see everyone in one one ball, and that's when we sort of got noticed by um, Gary Gersh and John Silva, who were that's Nirvana's people. Yeah, and I think they they lied to us and said, "Well, well, Thurston Moore said we should go check you out," sort of as a ploy to like sign with us, you know. Yeah, but we yeah. were already like, "Oh, you're Gersh and Silva. We're we're gonna go with you." you yeah, know? yeah, cool. So that was a big deal for us. And then you know we get uh, Gersh and Silva. They sign us to this thing called Den Digital Entertainment Network. That folds in the middle of making the record. Oh wow. And we're labelless, but in the same sentence, our A&R at the time named Craig Aronson is like, but now you're just automatically on Grand Royal. And right. we're like, how are we automatically on Grand Royal? Like, it's a great problem to have because I love the magazine, you yeah, know, yeah, and I, yeah. loved, I loved anything to do with Beastie Boys. Yeah, of course. And uh, you know, Beastie Boys were definitely hip to, like, shit like Huggy Bear and all the Riot Girl stuff. So it was like, they know what's going on right now. And they just sort of happened, I guess, it's because, you know, Silva and Gersh worked with BC Boys, and so it just kind of worked out, and the next thing you know... But still, it would have been cool to have a conversation. Yeah, it would have been cool to have a conversation, <laughs> but then as as we hit, uh, as we're... As when the, one of the hottest moments for us being in the UK at the time, then we were having uh, band meetings with our manager, with Mike D involved, which is really fucking surreal. That's insane. Because then he's given us, you know, advice based on what he went through, and... and it's not even comparable, yeah. <laughs> but that's it. Was really cool to have him on our our team now. It, it must have been a weird one from because you've got such a, a, a crossover sound or an amalgamation of sounds influences worn proudly on your sleeves. That when you blew up, I'm, I mean, even to now, you will have toured a lot with a lot of different kinds of bands. Mm-hmm. I know you did uh, Royal Blood earlier in the year, who mm-hmm. again are great, but are, are a more mainstream, a rocky thing. And yeah, I, I always remember speaking, it was only a year or so ago, I was speaking to Danny Lona, who was in mm-hmm. Tool and, and Nine Inch Nails and all that, or toured with a lot of these. And he was saying that years ago, you guys did a whole tour with them, and him and one of the other guys, a, t- a typical metalers, were like, oh, these guys are in suits, I ain't going to watch these guys, they're going to be some hip shit. And then a year or two later, he stumbled across you at a festival, and it was the best live show he's ever been. <laughs> and someone was like, you know those guys supported yeah. you for like a whole tour? And he was like... What I missed out on this completely. So, but that 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 kind of tells of what the crowds will be as well. If you're supporting a big metal band or a big indie band, you're gonna have to win them over. Do you think that right. was a positive thing or was that a tough thing? It was a necessary thing. Yeah, and I think um, 
even earlier on, like playing, we were opening for bands like um, AFI, yeah, and stuff like that. And those are really rough audiences. AFI's audience now is, is a lot more inclusive and accepting, but back then it was a predominantly straight edge male audience. Yeah, and I feel like in in some romantic point of view for me, like we appealed to the girlfriends. Not not physically or anything, like <laughs> yeah. musically and yeah. the way we performed. Because there was some stuff that, you know, sounded like we want, were interested in Modest Mouse or, yeah. or, you know, the softer side of what indie rock was. And I think somehow that we once we saw those tours pass and we might do another slot in the future, we saw the audience start changing. Yeah. And we saw the audience start dressing differently as well, yeah. you know. and um, So that was always interesting to see and or, you know. A Rage Against the Machine audience. Yeah. That's probably yeah. the hardest audience yeah. anyone will ever play for. Yeah. I don't think you'll walk out of there alive. Because they're there for a band who their first album had 100% hits on it. Yeah. Every song you want. Yeah. Like, no B-sides, no, yeah. no album tracks. So to then go out and not be Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. We had the choice at the time. <laughs> go go with Lasavi Fav, who at the time we were... I just, I mean, we knew them. They, yeah. they played El Paso and they stayed with us. And we're already blown away by them because their singer to me is, is an amazing lyricist yeah. and an amazing performer. Or go go with Rage Against Machine. And we had the, the luxury of making those choices. And then we did Rage Against Machine. Us, Gangstar, Rage Against Machine. Amazing. And Gangstar were the nicest people I've ever met and the most supportive. And the ones who took the time to be like, you know, those kids that just played, they got a lot of heart and soul. Be nice to them. Because we were getting pelted every night. Oh, Everyone wow. wanted to kill us. Damn. And it got to the point where Morello had to come out on his own. We didn't ask him to. On his own to be like, to announce us and be like, this is my favorite band. Don't fuck with them. Oh, you know? shit. <laughs> yeah, That's it was, amazing, It though. was rough. And what a tour as well. Because you could see that, that going either way. Because particularly over here, a lot of, of Rage fans are the white... Metal Kids, so Gangstar yep. would be quite alien to them. Uh-huh. So I, I love that Rage were going, rather than what new metal bands are about, to right. put on our own going, right, let's right. look at our real influences, the right. ones that uh, uh, that we've drawn from and that, uh, or have drawn from the same places. Right, because a lot of them on. don't remember Zach comes from hardcore band. Yeah. yeah. You know, so he knows he knows his stuff. Yeah. And that was that was always a relief to me. I'm like, oh, you, you're from the same sort of school that of touring that we've been a part of, yeah. which is really nice. And then it was interesting to see Gangstar handle the audience. People, some people would storm the stage and, yeah. and take swings at DJ Premier, and the, their entire crew would take the guy off stage and beat yeah. him to a, a pulp. And they had medieval weapons with them. Like, yeah. uh, wow. what do they call it? The mace? A mace, yeah. They had yeah. that. I saw them beating this guy with the mace. Amazing. You know, and then we'd get to the border and they'd be giving us hell. And I'm like, Gangstar is going to be rolling through here, this Canadian border right now. And those guys got medieval weapons. We're just a bunch of little kids playing rock music. We're not hiding anything. Let us go through, you know? I love so, that. Yeah. The, the way to, to, to not get a rough reception as a support band is be have everyone in the crowd scared of you. <laughs> Like, we're gonna play our gig now. Okay, yeah. don't don't you yeah. just just because I'm such a gangstar fan. When we did Jules Holland for the first time, he was playing Guru was playing as as Jasmataz, oh, wow. and he came right up to us and was like, "I remember you guys. What's up? How are you guys doing?" And oh, that's we were, amazing! I was blown away. Yeah. I was so blown away. And then he's with Herbie Hancock too, and we were just 
so blown away by that. Like that's you, amazing, you remembered right? us. You yeah, know? that's cool. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, so how was it when? So at the drive-in, stopped a, a Mars Volta Oberborn, and it felt like it gave you that chance to go even more intricate, even more obscure. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever I told you. We've, we've, we've chatted a few times over the year, but when the first Mars Volta album came out, I was working in um, in a record store. And before we started, I had it on, it's before we'd opened, I had it on loud. And I'm convinced it caused a member of staff to have an epileptic fit. <laughs> and I, I genuinely did, did, did oh. research onto audio responsive yeah. epilepsy after yeah. that. Because it was, I, I remember we're just uh, that, that's stacking the shelves. I had it on loud. And again, it's jarring and it's broken. And I'm talking to him and then he's just staring at me. And I'm like, is that all right? And he's just staring at me. And I'm like, I'm looking behind me. And then he started to shake. Oh, no. And then he was on the floor having oh. a fit. And I'm on my own on the shop floor, so I'm panicking. This, this Paul Kinch, if he's, he's listening, but he was, was fine oh. in the end. But I was always convinced that that was a reaction to the jarringness. Wow. Audio, audio responsive epilepsy. Wow. Well, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the mixes of the record crashed, crashed the, uh, the soundboard wow. at least five times. Yeah. So... If we can crash a computer during yeah. mix, it might be possible. All the brain is, is a computer. So, yeah. So, so, how was that when you started Mars Volta? And even more so, how was it to tour that? Because I loved the first record. I came and saw you guys at Electric Ballroom. Loved every second of it. But even I was sitting there thinking, I wonder if they'll do any at the driving songs. Yeah. So, how was that to, to, to do a new project still with Omar? So, it's still so identifiable mm-hmm. yeah. as you guys. But it'd be a different thing. We were just really, um, I don't know, we were just full on about not giving anybody a reason to ask for that after a while. And which it's the is right worth- choice. It's completely, again, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to be clear, it's, it's completely the right choice because it was, it was his own project and it was amazing and it, it bought another new crowd kind yeah. of thing. And, but yeah, it must have been a tough one. It was tough, but it was, that- it, was, uh, it was us sticking to our guns and believing that there was something uh special and unique about what our vision had in mind. I didn't I expected a lot of people to uh to hate it. I really did. And I was um really, really flying high off of these stories of bands like Suicide opening for the Clash or uh, Elvis Costello and the audience getting so mad at them ending up in a riot, you know, like, I want to do that, you know? And that's what I thought Volta was going to do. So the minute anyone liked it, it was a really big, big surprise. Yeah. It it really is. I mean, you can identify certain links that might sound like it'd be at the drive-in when you hear that first record. But for the most part, it is a big left turn. But Uh, Was there any slight annoyance? Or why are you all enjoying this so much? This I, isn't, you're not meant to be jumping around. I did, to yeah, this. I, I'm always suspicious of people. <laughs> I was suspicious of my wife when she expressed interest in me when I met her. So I'm like, really? <laughs> so I, okay, cool. That was it. Just was nice. Oh, it just felt nice. It was at Redden and Leeds. The first time I got to headline a stage, it was a big deal, and we started the set by chastising our audience because <laughs> headlining the main stage at that point was Rage Against the Machine, uh, who are one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Everyone were like, I'm so glad you're here, but. You're wrong. <laughs> You've made a mistake. <laughs> They're not round very often. It's lovely that you're here, but you shouldn't be. Um, so there's a lot I want to get in. We've got about t- 10, 15 minutes l- left. Along the way, you became a Scientologist briefly. Mm-hmm. You, you, you've, you've, you've gone away from that, obviously, now. But mm-hmm. 
how was that? Because you kind of seem to say that it, it, it changed your relationship with drugs and yeah. things like that in a positive way. Yes. Yet, obviously, as most people have a look of Scientology, then yeah. it's not good. So how were you kind of drawn into it? And then what was your... I was drawn into it as a way to break a lot of the habits that I thought were keeping me back as an artist yeah. at the time. And at the time, um, I mean, I woke up and smoked pot, had it in my system for, I mean, I was a zombie all the time. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't do it before I played because I, I can't do that. I can't function like that. But for the most part, like if I didn't have it, I was really not fun to be around. Yeah. And it got really scary for my wife after a while. And yeah. she always hid the fact that she was involved and had been right. away from it for a while. Yeah. So one day I remember finding the DVD and being like, okay, she obviously doesn't want to admit to it. And I yeah. took it home and lit a joint thinking I was going to watch uh, Battlefield Earth. And instead it was like this like um, Peace Corps kind of ideology, yeah. you yeah. know, like the self-help stuff. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, where's all the alien stuff that I keep hearing about, yeah. you know? And so one thing led to another and it was just like, should I should I go try something like anger management classes or AA for weed? Or should I go try this thing that offers an actual hands-on detox program? Because that's like the first step in Scientology. It's yeah. called the Purification Rundown. And so I did it, and it was, it was really crazy, uh, the stuff I experienced and the people I met there, which were – they were all walks of life. I was in there with, uh, with Jews and, and Muslims and, and from every part of the world – they were all there, and I was always like, well, don't you have to be a Scientologist, you know? And um, as I'm getting involved in that, my wife's always getting random calls. Hey, Church of Scientology, you haven't finished this course, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. her always getting mad at them, being like, fuck off, stop calling me. Yeah. But then her being like, you should try this fucking detox thing. It might be good for you. But she had been estranged from it. Right. She yeah, had been yeah. estranged from it for a while and yet had attained the level of clear. We even Wrong. have it. We even have the plaque because uh, uh, she had it framed back then, and now I have the plaque laughing because uh, of what we know now about yeah. it. But it all really boils down to the fact that they were pretty much keeping tabs on her, and then uh, sort of trying to understand the anomaly of her even trying to come back, yeah, and 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 utilize some of the courses, and then her being with me, yeah, and the main thing they try to do. Uh, in getting you involved in Scientology, which they will, ne no one will ever admit, but they have a, a saying called, you know, look for their ruin. Yeah. And I think any human being has a ruin, has yeah, a yeah, sore yeah, spot in life, you know? And I think for me, my ruin, as I've always talked in our music, is, is losing the abundance of musicians and friends that I have along the way. Yeah, sure. Whether it be Jeremy Ward, whether it be uh, Sarah and Laura, whether it be Julio Venegas, who is my best friend, who the album The Louse is about. I've always yeah. had this this sadness really yeah. you know and that's that's my ruin yeah. once you start talking to someone enough you figure out what their ruin is yeah. and they can say okay well now you've done this detox program you might want to try this course you know it's just about dealing with the ups and downs in life and how about this other one and you complete the courses and there's someone there with you to make sure you understand what it is and clear the words as they yeah. say and and after a while you just start to realize like you guys have just monopolize this religious technology that basically is mind over matter 
You've just yeah. figured out ways to say it in an opposite way and, and sell it to you. And that's what's fucked up about them. The, the positives is there is some really good self-help type stuff there. There, there is, is that, but that's that not, unity it, of... But it's not his original idea, yeah. those self-help things. Oh, oh, there are none, none of them, none of it, you know. But it's, and again, there's, there is that, that, that unity. I said of kind of there is people from all different walks of life, but the fucked up part is that they're then this controlling kind of evil beast of an organization yeah. and uh, again we won't go into it in, to, in huge detail because i know it's something you're battling it at the moment but you've spoken about it a bit online and again it deserves exposing but they've tried incredibly hard to cover up and to to uh, suffocate the sexual abuse that your wife yeah. experienced within scientology from scientologists and that kind of thing and again uh, that I was going to say, how can any religion do that? But I guess that's what makes it a religion. That's kind of that's kind of the go-to of religion. It, it is covering up this kind of. It is. I'd be naive just to think that the Vatican doesn't do that yeah, kind of shit. They exactly. do. Yeah. Most of them do. No religion wants you to know about their, uh, you know, what makes them human. And I guess that is a that is the definition then, because if it was just a self-help organization or whatever else, then they'd want to attack or weed out or. Did, distance themselves from horrible things but religion has a history of going no let's just let's cover it up let's yeah. deny it and that's that's the, the the fucked up part there it it really is because their pockets are deep yeah and so they are able to do things that looks like they had nothing to do with it yeah and that's sort of been the uh the cross to bear with my wife really coming to actualization about what had been done to her you know yeah. and her having used a lot of uh Scientology terms and, you know, just what some of the courses teach, she had really trained herself to sort of bury the incident that she had, yeah. had gone through. And it just took one day, a couple conversations, actually, where I would point blank, say the uncomfortable things a friend needs to say to another friend and say, what you're telling me that happened is straight up rape. Yeah. Like, I love you. But yeah. I have to tell you something that uncomfortable. And I just, you know, it was at one of those moments where it really hit her. And in, in the same moment where we would have a constant communication with people that were appointed to us, then they wouldn't take our calls anymore. Yeah. Then yeah. they wouldn't, you know, want to answer our questions, you know. And then everything you, then you start meeting other people involved in it and you start, you know, uh, you start really paying attention to the people that were telling you not to get involved in the first place. because, And you don't pay attention to those people at the beginning because what you're experiencing is so good. And it's not as simple as like abracadabra, you're brainwashed. Yeah. The thing that L. Ron Hubbard is really skilled at is the manipulation of language to suit anyone's ruin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Once you do that, once you can find someone's ruin, want that button – you can really not necessarily string them along, but you can present them as with these pseudo facts of like, how do you feel right now? Yeah. Well, is that not attributed to the fact that we helped you get there? Yeah. You know, yeah. and then yeah, after yeah, a while yeah. you got to realize, well, shit, that's the way I used to feel about weed. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, like yeah, you're yeah. just not rolled in paper, you know? <laughs> yeah. Your paper is nicely typed and categorized and is, you know, tax exempt. And, yeah. and why are you called a celebrity center? Yeah. Well, I've never got I never got a straight answer. It was yeah. just that was just always bizarre to me going to this place called Celebrity Center and just being treated the way we were treated then. And now I just know why 
why that was because one of the bigger fish that my wife used to date is a big donor. Yeah. Really. And his family is a big donor. And that, if you can see it as that and the trickle down effect, you'll understand why it's so, it's like, it's like the Stasi or it's like, you know, uh, it's just like the, uh, Little branches of uh, ex-Israeli military that Harvey Weinstein hires. It's the same thing. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're just like that. They've, you know, um, I can't legally prove it, but we lost a dog recently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's the most I could say about that. Yeah. No, of course. And it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's fucked up because it is. It's, 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 it's an organization that, that, that lures people in on, on that compliment, on you, you're great. You're wonderful, right. but you're great and wonderful because of what we've done to make you great yeah. and wonderful. So yeah. we're responsible for that. Denying and distancing themselves from any negativity or negative effects, but taking credit for all the positive. And therefore, they've, they've, that's why they have these people who donate hugely because these people who would have been successful regardless, but they've had it put into them that they're successful because yeah. of the support of the church and right. so on and so forth. And yeah, it's horrendous on, on, on a more positive note. Um, we've, you've talked about uh, your wife there and you've got an amazing wife and I would argue the two cutest kids I've ever seen in my <laughs> Thank life. You. Thank so you. So how is touring life now from when you were a young guy in the back of a van struggling to call home to yeah. your touring in a far better way now, but you're away from your, your, your wife and kids is that a great support does that make it easier or harder i guess because they seem supportive and behind it and every time you post videos and stuff there's so much yeah love and warmth there i mean i i i, I don't have the ability nor do i want to show what it's like when i actually leave yeah but every you know we all cry when i when i leave because we're so close and it's hard it's really really hard yeah and um i've tried to do a short little leg once where we were Omar and I had a band called Anti-Mask, and yeah. I brought them on the tour bus, and they were two years old, so they were teething. So it was rough for yeah. the entire band. Yeah, You course. know, and I w- it was difficult, but I've always wanted to get to a point where I could start bringing them on the road with me. But, um, yeah, they. Um, I don't really like to talk about or show them videos. My wife does that yeah. when I'm not home, you know, but I'm always like... You know how you like to eat this certain kind of food, and you know how we can go out and just have water to drink. I'm like, yeah. that's because data. That's when data leaves, and that's how he makes his money. You yeah. know, and yeah. So little by little, they understand more, but it, it's rough because they definitely act out when I'm gone. Yeah, you know, and only really until recently, a couple of days ago, has one of them verbalized like, "Mama, I know it's hard on you. Oh wow, I'm going to be better. I'm not going to fight with my bro- my oh, brubby wow. so much." And I'm sorry, you know. That's a beautiful moment. Yeah, it's right. a really beautiful yeah. moment. And then, you know, of course, he goes right back into the, like, <laughs> uh, uh, trying to express that he's bummed that I'm not there. Because yeah. when I'm there, I'm one of them. Yeah. I, yeah. It's just constant playtime. Yeah. You know, and I let I let Chrissy um, have the time off. Someone asked me, what are you doing for your wife on National Women's Day? I think it was a year ago. And I was like, well, I'm giving her time off. And it sounded so chauvinistic. Yeah. But, you know, when you don't trust things like nannies and you're really hands-on, like an uh, an entire month off from not having to take care and sleep in, 
That's gold. It's the greatest gift. <laughs> it's I the mean, greatest. just being able to shower or watch yeah. and not have <laughs> yeah. kids just attached to yeah. you. It really is. It was only uh, when I became a godparent and I'd, I'd think I'm going around to entertain the kids or whatever. I'd realize I'm going around to distract them yeah. so that their <laughs> mum can yeah. breathe for a minute or yeah. go, literally go to the toilet without a child exactly. climbing on them. Exactly. Like, so giving some time yeah. off, it sounds, it might sound one way, but that's a hell of a gift. You no, know, it a- really is. <laughs> it really is just to be able to sit down and even watch nonsense on TV. Yeah. As a parent is, it's, it's, you need that every once in a while and double time cause it's twins. So she, um, she's just one of the most strongest supportive pillars in my life. Who's allowed me, even allowed me to leave like weeks after they were born yeah. on the tour. Wow. Yeah. That was really rough calling home. And she's like, I'm losing my fucking mind right now. Yeah. You know? So we've just got the, f- <laughs> <laughs> a, a five minute signal so i'll get two more things in now number one how was doing the anti-mask stuff because that was again uh, coming back j- just as you've kind of started to come back without the drive and things yeah like that, with a new thing it was one of the hardest things to watch on social media because our mutual friend and someone else i absolutely adored Tra- travis barker mm-hmm. was playing some drums with you guys at shows and mm-hmm. that was just like the gigs I'd love to be at, but I'm in another country. So, right. so how was that to do those shows and to have people guesting and all sorts of other? Uh, it was it was like fantastic because that. that was the the band that we sort of utilized to repra- re- repair an estrangement that happened between Omar and I. Yeah, we tried a lot of the anti mass stuff. Uh, the first record was stuff we were tooling around that was going to be for at the driving, but Jim wasn't ready at the time. Right, and um, Jim kind of like expressed that he wanted to play so for a a, a while there it was going to be jim on bass and then like two weeks before the tour it was like i can't do this i didn't know it was that much touring blah 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 blah. um so we were it was it was a good problem to have because uh marfred uh omar's brother came in and 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 took over bass duties and so instead of at the drive-in taking off at that moment 2014 when it should have um, we put it again on the back burner and, and said, okay, let's wait till we're all really in the right spot mentally. Yeah. And uh, so the anti mask became that. And then we just, and then my wife knew Travis. Yeah. Because uh, she used to be friends with his ex wife. And um, she said, you should reach out to him. I He's said, really? He's the friendliest dude in the world. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and you know what? We hung out with him on, on, uh, on the night that we got married because he was in Vegas. And he was just the coolest guy. Yeah. I, I didn't expect, I didn't know anything about him, and he was super cool. And he expressed to me that he loved Mars Volta, which threw me for a loop. I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. anything about him yeah. at all. And then I really paid attention. I was like, "How I've been sleeping this on this yeah. guy? He's he's he rips. Yeah. He's not just one thing. No. And then he was super cool to us. And again, I mean, it's, it's the beautiful thing. It reminded me of what you were saying at the start of this, of when it was bands who all played together, who shared members. Yeah. He's probably the biggest drummer in the world, right? Yeah. Yet he still has that mentality. He jumps on with people. I one of the times I was in LA, he he, he drummed on one of my singles and he just cool. he laid down some tracks. Just like you can just come around and I'll I'll lay some tracks down for you, which was a huge favor. And then when I'm leaving, he gives me a bag of, of famous clothing. His label, <laughs> and I was like, dude, this is just the nicest guy in the world. Yeah, just, he is just helping out. And we realized when we were first coming together <laughs> that we were always 
maybe a venue or a couch away from meeting each other yeah, because yeah. he was involved in Fearless Records too. I think with Aquabats at the time and just being part of all these tour runs that we had done, it was like yeah. we were almost meeting each other, and then we finally did. And that was really because my wife just said, "She go call him. this guy out," and I did. And he was cool enough to take the phone call, and it was he was amazing, very, very, very cool to us. Amazing. Well, I'll wrap things up on this. Um, you've spoken about losing people a lot in your life, and that yeah. being the driving force, and just a, a really cool people. Um, Ike Owens um, passed a few years back. He worked with Sage Francis, who was a good friend of mine, so I'd always heard these good stories. Mm-hmm. Seemed to be another dude that just kind of jumped in numerous places and numerous bands and was and was was loved and adored. Yes. So, so how great was it like having someone that in your life and 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 having that influence? And, oh, he is somebody him. that definitely changed my life for the better. Yeah, and is um, mostly anyone that it, has ever worked with Omar and I is work has worked with this. Probably based on two things, like yeah, they're they're they rip or something. They're they're great, but they had the balls to jump into a really uncomfortable moment. Right, like um, with Ike, it was just like he heard we wanted we needed a keyboard player with DeFacto. Yeah, and uh, uh, he just showed up at a party we were playing at. We didn't even know. Oh wow! He just showed up, plugged in. We didn't talk, and he played with us. That's how he's always been. That's amazing. And so that that's. I have great memories of Ike just being like that. Yeah. Being fearless, eating a whole fucking cheeseburger as he's playing live, talking on the mic, ripping at the same time. I love the idea of someone asking, <laughs> how did you join the band? I just decided to. Yeah, he just they, walked up. How did you have that conversation? Oh, there wasn't a conversation. Yeah. why? I just he, started playing in the band and then I was in the band. I have no idea why because he had just come <laughs> off of playing with like Sublime and a bunch of ska stuff. For, so for him to be like, these two scraggly little guys from a from a... Some post-hardcore band are playing dub music. I'm going to go down and just play with them. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that was that's the band that every, a lot of people make fun of us for, or you really like that band. But for him to take the chance, and then, you know, then he would just hang out with us, and we would cut all these little de facto records. And then, same thing, he would come over here and jump on the tours where we were, after I had the drive-in with Tour of Europe, we would stay longer and do de facto, and he would stay with us and jump trains and play these little hole in the walls, and yeah. to the point to one one time we got to um, uh, um, I think Slovenia, and this couple took him home and fed him, basically off the premise that they'd never seen or been around a black person before. Right, and his story was just amazing, and I was, and like the fact that he did that, you know, he was yeah. just so open for it. And um, there's a ex girlfriend of his um, named Danielle. And she just released a children's book uh, on Third Man Records. And it's a children's book, and the character is her and Ike. Oh, wow. And I do a little uh, sort of forward explanation. Amazing. And I just got my copy, but I got my copy right before, and as I was texting her, I didn't want to open it yet because it's still, it's emotional, you yeah. know, and that we found out with anti-mask on stage wow we got the phone call from lalo our old tour manager who's jack white's tour manager yeah he was in the middle of um yeah finding him in the hotel wow. room oh, and God. he and he called us because you know he's he's volta family yeah and so when i got this children's book that is illustrations of ike and, and it's a beautiful children's story it just i haven't opened it yet because you know 
Yeah, that's it's still be, sad to me. Yeah, it still it's hits. It's going to be an emotional yeah. one. Well, I'll let you go, but thank you very much for your time. Where can people keep up to date with you on on social media and stuff like I that? I guess on I guess usually my favorite one is just through Instagram. Yeah, and uh, I can't remember the name on it. I think it's like Cedric underscore Bixler underscore yeah. Zavala. Yeah, or on on Twitter, you'll it's, you'll see me on there. Uh, social media is my favorite for learning new. Um, <laughs> Mexican slang I've never <laughs> I've never heard before a, a loads of your, your your posts and rants on there I'm like oh I have to do some googling yeah. and find out what this means but yeah. you'll have to yeah brush up on your uh, Chicano <laughs> Cholo speak because that's yeah that's just ingrained in us perfect well thank you very much man I'm glad we finally got to do this great thank you, thank you. There we go. That was Cedric. Um, what an absolute treat. The dude's a legend. I've been listening to At The Driving for years, and it was always a tour favourite. Uh, Natasha Fox, if you've ever heard any of her songs, her, her I, even the Warren Peace album and the Bricks album have got influences of At The Driving. But Natasha's band Future Ages, which you can find their music online, um, again, hugely influenced by Cedric and the rest of the band. So yeah, it was great to to sit down with Cedric and have a chat. Obviously, we went into some heavy stuff towards the end there. Um, Cedric and his family in general are going through some really horrible times at the moment, some challenging times, but they certainly have my support. Um, all these things are always often seen as risky or dangerous to discuss, particularly um, when it's speaking out against groups who are very much lawyered up. But it's an important subject, and yeah, if you can't talk about it here, where can you talk about it? So yeah, no, no, no restriction or editing or or caution there, because yeah, it needs to be talked about and it needs to be exposed. So uh, yeah, you the 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 Bixler Zavala family have have the full support of the Distraction Pieces podcast for whatever that is worth. Very little, I'm sure, but yeah, big love to those guys. I'll be back next week with Beans on Toast on Wednesday. Um, that's my guest. That's not my meal choice. It may also be my meal choice. That's none of your damn business. But with Beans on Toast on Wednesday. Um, oh, also, damn, this is um, this podcast comes out on the anniversary of someone who I talk about a lot on the podcast, my mate Jay. Me and Chris talk about him a lot. We did a lot of crying on the Songs That Make You Cry um, episode, and a lot of that was related to our mate Jay. And Jay, Jay used to listen to At The Driving. And I, in fact, I talk about Jay in this podcast when we were talking about... Um, napoleon solo so this is kind of perfectly timed to come out on this date so shout out to the one jamie not um big love my homie um yeah i'll be back next week thank you all for tuning in this has been episode 201 of the distraction pieces podcast bye